Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to another episode of Middle Grade Ninja. I'm Rob Kent. I'm the author of Vanneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Uh, talk about this book every episode. I will never get tired of talking about this book or wearing the shirt. Um, I was just thinking today, because we're going to be talking with Lamar Giles, one of the founders of We Need Diverse Books, about how in uh, 2008 or so, um, just as uh, Barack Obama had announced his presidential candidacy, and my wife, an African-American woman, and I were thinking about uh, getting married, I was walking around bookstores and thinking, okay, well, if we get married and we have children, if I've got a son, what kind of books are going to be available for him to read? And I ventured into the African-American fiction section, um, which I'd done before, but now I was really looking. And what I kept seeing uh, was that apart from a couple of standby classics, it was a lot of books about slavery and a lot of books about civil rights. And I thought, well, both of those un undeniably important topics, but that's kind of depressing. Where are the books about the young black boys that get to go to chocolate factories? Where are the books about the uh, young black boys that get to go on adventures? And I thought, well, I need to write one because if, if there's one thing the uh, genre needs, it's the input from a white guy. This is that book, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees was specifically written to go on that bookshelf where I saw that there wasn't a book like it. It's about a biracial boy detective. Uh, named after Benjamin Banneker. All of the names within the book come from names from black history. The reason why uh, is my wife had originally intended to write a um, Encyclopedia Brown type story about Banneker Jones, and I changed it to Bones, so that's, that's my creative input. Uh, and I wrote it more or less for my wife. So this is a love story about an 11-year-old Batman, Iron Man type detective uh, who fights giant robot bees. Also, I made him a bit of a jerk because I figure if you're going to have a biracial boy detective, he shouldn't have the pressure on him to be the golden child, the perfect one. He's still a Batman type character, but he's a bit of a jerk. And I like that about him. I'm looking forward to seeing him again in Banneker Bones and the Alligator People, uh, which will be available here in late May, early June. Uh, still working on an exact date. As soon as we know it, I will uh, never stop telling you about it. Uh, Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees is available now. It's available in paperback, an audiobook narrated by David Radke, and the ebook is free to download anytime you're watching or listening to this. So wherever fine ebooks are sold, get yourself a copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. Under the super secret pen name Robert Kent, I've written some uh, horror stories for adults, including All Together Now, a zombie story. Uh, this is a story about uh, zombies, obviously, but also has an interracial romance. And all right now is the story about a black man who's just had a uh, baby with his white wife and then has to hide in an all-white church because I thought, well, wouldn't it be hilarious uh, if my father-in-law, right after having had uh, my wife, got stuck in just the craziest church of white people he ever saw. So that's all right now a short zombie story. And then the Book of David is a five-volume serial novel, uh, the first volume of which is free. I think we've got a Batman toy overboard. Uh, and this one intentionally has an all-white cast with the exception of one pivotal character. That is an intentional thematic concern because I'm talking about the racism in small white towns. Also about an atheist who buys a uh, haunted house and then begins to get religious visions of flying saucers. So if you're curious about that, it's five uh, volumes long. 
The first volume, the Book of David, Chapter 1, is available to download as an ebook for free whenever you're watching or listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. Uh, so get yourself a copy of the Book of David, Chapter 1, if you like a Stephen King type story with heavy amounts of profanity. Uh, coming up next week on the blog, what's on March 18th, we're going to have uh, Kathy Appelt. She'll be at the blog. She'll also be here on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. Uh, today, however, I'm going to be talking with author Lamar Giles. I'm sorry, Giles. Uh, Lamar, how are you today? I'm good. How are you, Robert? I am excellent. It is Lamar Giles, right? It's Giles, and, and thank you for having me on. It's, it's, I'm looking forward to the conversation. I am thrilled to uh, chat with you. We were just talking before we got started here about the uh, uh, Batman versus Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie coming that I know we're, we're both terribly excited about. It's <laughs> news to me, but I'm glad you told me because I will be on the lookout for it. In fact, I was uh, stalking you and preparing for this, and I found out we have all kinds of things in common. Okay. Uh, we both played uh, Prince for one of the first songs at our wedding. I think you played the Kiss. Did yeah. you and your wife dance to the Kiss? Yes, yes, that was our first. Well, that was our first um, party song. You know, we had to do the slow song and the, the father-daughter dance. But once that was out of the way, I'm like, it's got to be Prince. And my wife was on board, so it was the Kiss, and that set off the the everybody party part. That's guy. Yeah, you know you're about to have a good party when you when you start off with that. Yeah. My wife and I did our first dance. That was the only thing about the wedding she let me pick. Uh, everything else she she did most of, which I was fine with. Mm -hmm. um, but when it came to the dance, we our first dance we did "Scandalous" by Prince, which of course is the love theme from Batman. Yeah. Uh, and that one gets a little bit uncomfortable because it just goes on for like eight minutes. <laughs> uh, and at one point, there's a lady moaning in the background, as as there is in some Prince songs. And so that was when her uh, father came over. Like, We're just gonna go ahead and start the father-daughter dance a little bit early. <laughs> but it was glorious for uh, for about the first five minutes or so. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then we're both uh, huge Stephen King fans and fans of horror. I know you'd mentioned It was one of your all-time favorite novels. Oh, yeah. Um, it is the book that made me want to write. I read it when I was 11 years old. It was the biggest book I read in my life up to that point. And I got through it in a week. And, you know, that's, that book's 1,100 pages. So I was pretty much neglecting everything else in life to finish and find out what happened to the losers. And when I was done, it was like I'd seen a magic trick. I didn't understand how this man could just take these words and make me feel fear by arranging them in a certain way. And it's pretty much a trick I've been trying to learn more or less my entire life. Yeah, if you figure out, uh, tell me tell me how he did it. Because <laughs> I read that, I reread it. Uh, every couple of years, I've got it on audiobook and uh, yeah. uh, parts of it, Parts of it, I feel like I understand. Parts of it, I'm still trying to find out how he did what he did. Yeah, man, he's amazing. Um, I had the opportunity to meet him briefly back in 2015. And um, just he was just, it's one of those things where you're nervous because they always say don't meet your heroes. And I was like, just praying that it wouldn't be like a really sour interaction. But he was such a nice man. Um, it just made me love him even more. Uh, now I'm uh, doubly jealous of you. <laughs> <laughs> I was already a little bit jealous uh, because of all the books you've written and all the success you've had, but that, that puts me over the top. Yeah, I'm, sorry. I'm sorry. I hope we can still be friends. I think we'll be all right. I uh, worked with a waiter once that when he had been in the Massachusetts area, had uh, waited on Stephen King and his daughter. And I was like, did you get his autograph? Like, no. Yeah. Did you say anything to him? I'm like, no. Uh, he, he was eaten, and I just... I thought about telling him how much I like one of his movies, but I figured that'd make it weird and left it alone. I was just like, 
Yeah. And I, then I had to ask the follow-up question, have you ever read a Stephen King novel? No. <laughs> oh, why was that opportunity wasted on you? <laughs> yeah. But for the sake of Mr. King's lunch, I'm sure that's the preferable waiter. <laughs> I can tell you a little bit more about that night because this was at the Edgar Awards back in 2015. So um, his novel, Mr. Mercedes, was nominated for Best Novel. Um, my novel, Fake ID, was nominated in the Best Young Adult category. So here's the thing. Me and him, I, we talked. It was a good conversation. Totally cool. Totally nice man. But you could see, like, or at least I could see, like, how strange it must be to be him. Because, like, when we got to the banquet part of the evening, like, you could just see people watching him eat. And it was like I started to feel uncomfortable for him. Um, his wife, um, Tabitha, was there. Um, and you could just see, like, he won, he won the best novel category, but he ended up leaving early because they asked the winners to stay behind to take a picture. And he, and he said they had brought their dog along and the dog needed to be tended to. But part of me suspects he knew if he stayed, he would have gotten mobbed by the after party crowd. So, um, you know, I mean, a blessing and a curse, right? I mean, he's Stephen King. He's had some of the greatest successes in our industry, but, but it seems strange that he couldn't just exist in the room like the rest of us. Yeah, I wish I, I had his talent, but I have absolutely no interest in having even a quarter of his fame. Yeah, yeah. Well, we can talk about Stevie King all day, but I want to talk about you. Uh, so why don't you give uh, esteemed audience kind of an overview of your background and some of the novels you've written? Sure. Um, I'm, my name is Lamar Giles, and I've been writing professionally since I was about 21 years old. That's when I sold my first short novel. I'll be 40 this year. Um, between the ages of 21 and 30, I sold a few short fiction pieces, got mostly rejections, kept working on the craft, though. And by the time I was 30, I sold my first young adult novel, Fake ID, um, which is about a teenage boy in witness protection who moves to his fourth town in four years and ends up having to solve his best friend's murder, though he fears his own father may be involved. So that book sort of put me on the map in terms of being a young adult mystery thriller writer. And my books ever since then have fallen in that category. Um, there was Endangered, um, which is about a teen photographer who sneaks around taking pictures of the meanest kids in her school and posting photos on the internet of them doing dirt. This inspires a crazy person to go after those kids. Um, there's my novel Overturn, which is about a, a young girl in Las Vegas who has to figure out who framed her father for murder. Then my novel Spin, which just came out in January, about two frenemies who have to solve their DJ friend's murder. And now my latest book, which will be out in April, is The Last Last Day of Summer, which is a departure from the thrillers. It's a middle grade fantasy. It stars the legendary Austin boys of Logan County. Um, there's Otto, who's a lovable know-it-all, and she, who's sometimes cranky but always cool. And they get tricked into freezing time by the villain, Mr. Flux, and they have to work with some really strange characters to save the day. So that's sort of what I've been working on over the last 20 years. And I'm, I, can, I can say I'm pretty proud of what I produced, and I hope the readers like it too. What uh, month will you turn 40? November. Oh, okay. Well, see, there's something else for me to jealous of. I'll be turning 40 in August, so <laughs> you're a couple of months younger, too. We both, we both put it in on the tail end of the 70s then. Yep. yep. Younger and, and more handsome. Oh, it's ain't a shame. <laughs> I, I, I might be blessed, man. <laughs> 
Well, let's, uh, you know, let's start with uh, talking about the last, last day of summer. I've got my copy right here. I don't want to give too much away since obviously uh, outside of really special, important people like me, it's, it's not available yet, but it will be soon. Um, so with the uh, last, last day of summer, you mentioned Otto and Sheed uh, on, a, on a mystery. Can you, um, well, how much can you talk about at, at this stage uh, about what happens to them? Okay, so I can give you the basic setup. They're, they're known as the legendary Austin boys of Logan County. Logan County is a very weird place. It's a supernatural town where a lot of strange things happen, and the town tend to rely on their local adventurers to solve these problems. That happens to be Otto and She, who are the star of this book. But there's also a rival team that I won't name right now, but they pop up later in the book. And uh, I think they have some very interesting interactions with Otto and Sheed. Um, so they're not the sole protectors of the county. Um, but a, a mysterious villain shows up. His name is Mr. Flux. And he tricks the boys into using a magical camera to snap a picture of the county from on top of a hill. And when they snap that picture, it freezes time um, everywhere in the in, within the confines of the photo. So that's the whole county. Um, time stuck. And when time sticks, it sort of puts the agents of time, we call them clock watchers, out of work. So they're free, they're anxious, and them meeting up with Auto and Sheed causes a lot of chaos. It's a super strange book, but really fun. Um, it was inspired partially by the Phantom Toll booth, um, particularly with a lot of the wordplay in the book. And it's just like something I've always wanted to do. And my current publishing situation finally allowed for me to give it a shot. That's something that uh, gets name checked a lot. The Phantom Toll Booth. I'm always hearing this book is the new Phantom Toll Booth. Um, this one on the back says that this is the Phantom Toll Booth meets the Hardy Boys, and I would say that's a hundred percent an accurate description, uh, which is rare. But I would go ahead and put this on the shelf next to the Phantom Toll Booth. That's that's how highly I thought of this uh, as I read it, and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, and I felt that it was uh, almost, it, I mean, it's obviously, it's a fantasy, but it's, it's a little bit of a thriller as well, just in terms of um, there's always something exciting happening. Every chapter uh, or almost every chapter uh, ends with uh, sort of a, not quite an exact cliffhanger every time, although there are lots of cliffhangers, but there's always a little bit of something that propelled me and kept me wanting to know what was going to happen uh, next. Um, how uh, how many drafts did you have to do of each chapter and each chapter ending to get that accomplished? Um, I say last day, last last day took probably four drafts. And the reason being, many years ago, it probably would have taken me much more. But because I've been writing thrillers for the last several years, I'm very used to that sort of scene break, chapter break setup that'll sort of leave a hook to keep the reader involved. So I, I go into it now knowing that I need to end my chapters in a certain way. And even if I can't get it in first draft or second draft, I've got a note there that says, come back and fix this. So it took maybe one draft took about three months. The second draft was just a clean up draft before it went to the editor. Then the editorial notes came back. So that was draft three after those notes. And then one more passed once the editor saw my changes, told me what she liked and didn't like, and we polished it. So yeah, about four. Gotcha. And um, I'm just chuckling because I do that to myself occasionally also. I'll write in, make this funny later, <laughs> add something exciting here, and then 
uh, present me will hate past me. Like, why didn't you just do it? Then I could edit it. <laughs> yeah, I think our process is similar because I spend a lot of time going back to those highlighting notes like, oh, I wish I'd just taken care of it earlier. On the other hand, you, you do have the confidence that, well, okay, this is mostly done. So if I just do what past me didn't do, eventually there will be a book. Yeah. And also I find when, I, when I'm writing notes like that, it tends to be out of fatigue. And, um, you know, I've probably been writing most of the day. So I've gotten to that point where I'm just not really able to, to hone it to a razor's edge. So it's good to take a break, rest, come back fresh and look at it again, I think, sometimes. And so well, let's let's. Let me ask you that. What uh, give us kind of an overview of your day? I know you just got back from Hong Kong. You're getting ready to go back out on tour. But typically, when you're not out promoting your books, when you're writing, drafting, editing, what does your workday look like? Yeah, sure. I'm usually up about six a.m. and I'll take about an hour to just answer emails. There's a lot of email to answer these days, which you know I'm grateful for. It's good to be busy. But that first hour of the day will usually be like admin business stuff. Then I'll see my wife off to work. So we may eat breakfast together, watch a little bit of the news. By eight o'clock, I'm at my desk and I'm trying to work on whatever the new project is, at least until noon. Ideally, I like to get five pages down. And most days I can do that. After lunch, it just depends on what's going on, because I've been in a position the last couple of years where I typically have to write in the morning and edit something old in the evening. And so the afternoon will be like revisions, editorial notes or more email. So it's pretty much a full work day. At least that's how I treat it. By five or so, I want to knock off, cook dinner and get ready for my wife to come home so we can enjoy the evening. And then I do it all over again. Yeah, I tend to uh, try and cook. My, my wife's got the health insurance. Yeah. Uh, so I try to have uh, dinner um, prepared when she comes home, although she's the better cook. So sometimes she prefers that I, I step aside and, and, and let her do that. Uh, but then um, I go back and I, I, I work a little bit more and, and she goes to her office. We're both uh, workaholics. Yeah. <laughs> and we have a five-year-old, which which changes the dynamic a little oh, bit as well. I can't imagine. That's a fun age. My nephew's five. So we see him a lot. And, um, it's always neat to see a little personalities develop. Yeah, we uh, go for walks. We play games outside uh, when the weather is cooperating, which it's uh, nice and sunny here in Indiana today. So hopefully we'll get to do that. Yep. Nice, nice. And um, oh, let's see. I had some more questions for you uh, about uh, the last last day. I wanted to ask you, what are the differences between when you're writing uh, for the young adult market versus the middle grade? Well, I, I, I don't know if this is like a universal difference for anyone who works in both of those age groups. But for me, it's much less darkness when I'm writing middle grade. My thrillers for the young adult audiences tend to be murder mysteries and tend to be like exploring some of the senior parts of my fictional world. So for me, being able to write middle grade is a little bit more freeing in terms of approaching lighter, funnier material. Um, again, I, I, I don't know if that's anything I can say for anyone else who does both things, but that's been a huge difference. I've, 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 I've felt sunnier writing the last last day of summer which i guess is appropriate because it's, it takes place in summer but um when i'm writing ya i tend to be in a much darker place and so i like being able to get out of there i want to write more middle grade yeah i find feel find the same thing happening i like to alternate back and forth so that if i've been doing five chapters of the book of david which gets really dark by the end oh my god i, I need banneker more than ever i need something that's going to make me laugh and, and have fun yeah. And cheer me up. 
Yeah, exactly. I'm right there with you. And then um, I wanted to ask you about this beginning because it's really just an extraordinary beginning because um, it, 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 it wastes no time. Uh, you managed to, again, this is a book that, that I can read that those that are listening and watching haven't read yet, but this will be around for a while and they'll, they'll come back after they have. Um, by, I believe second chapter there, is it second chapter or third chapter? They're meeting um, uh, Mr. Fluff and uh, the and, and, and the camera and everything that, that happens to them because we get one chapter, we get to establish Otto and Sheed, we get to establish that they uh, like acronyms because there are acronyms and, and lists throughout the book. And we get the um, we get a sense of the characters. We don't know everything about them, but we know that uh, Otto's kind of the instigator. She's a little bit. Uh, he's the um, I believe the Joe uh, of the two, or is it? No, Frank is the one that's uh, that, that hangs back a little bit, and Joe is the Otto that's uh, a little bit more excited and wants to get out there and do adventures. Although they're they're both encouraging each other the whole way, and then right away immediately. Um, they are off on a new adventure. So how many, uh, how many, I know you did four drafts overall. So it's the third chapter. Um, it's the second chapter that they uh, meet Mr. Flex and it's the third chapter that they realize that they're, that they're really in trouble uh, and things go from there. And these are, you know, short chapters. So it's a relatively small amount of the book by the time they get there. How many passages, passes did you have to do on that beginning to work all of that in such a relatively small amount of space? Oh, okay. So the beginning probably took a little bit more than the total number of drafts. And what I mean is when I had to pitch this whole idea, I needed to submit sample chapters, which included the first three chapters. So those were done before I fully got the green light to write the whole book. So I ended up playing with that a lot. I would say that probably took a good five or six drafts to just get the balance right on how much information I wanted to give on Otto, she and the county in the first chapter. Um, because it's a matter of, have you ever seen, um, Star Wars Empire of Dreams? It's a documentary about George Lucas making the first Star Wars film. And in that documentary, he talks about how he wanted to introduce an established universe. And this is fully where the idea came from that I wanted to drop right in the middle of these two kids who've been on adventures you haven't seen. You just know that by the way that the first chapter opens, that stuff's been going on well before you got there. And so it took a little bit to nail that down properly where it was just enough information. It wasn't overwhelming, but at the same time, not confusing. So that took a while, probably longer than any of the other edits on the book. Yeah, no, we uh, learned relatively early on that they uh, have won the, the key to the city twice already. Uh, they have taken on a werewolf, and the, the mayor calls them against peeved-off jackalopes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so again, without without giving too much away, because you, you do get all that right there up front. Um, you're walking in, and we feel almost like we're we're reading a sequel. Um, yeah. uh, we're maybe book five in a in a series rather than uh, book one, which is very exciting. Just just hits the ground running. Yeah, that, like I said, that was very much on purpose, and I, I didn't know if anyone would let me get away with it, but I was pretty much given the mandate here to do what I want. And once and once they told me that, I'm like, are you sure? Because it's going to get very weird. And they were like, no, go for it. We'll let you know if it's going too far. And so it took a little bit of juggling, but that was all on purpose. And I think we nailed it down finally. Did you uh, go too far a couple of times? I'm um, certain I did. Um, <laughs> there's an acknowledgement in the back of the final book 
where I'm talking to my editor. Her name's Margaret Ramo. And so I joke about how we had so many discussions where I'm talking to her about like time travel, other dimensions, um, DuckTales. I always talk about duck. Like when I try to explain stuff to her that she doesn't get, she's like, you know, I really don't understand this stuff anymore. I'm like, well, you know, there's this episode of DuckTales. And <laughs> so there were moments where Margaret was like, hey, um, I really don't know what you're talking about right now. So can we dial it back for the readers who might be closer to me than you? And so, you know, we found a comfortable middle ground. That's very wise. There's an episode of DuckTales. Perfect. <laughs> that's how you know that you're uh, you're hauling in on everything that's good in the world. <laughs> well, let's uh, let's move from from this book, which you can't quite discuss much of yet, to one that you can. Um, remind esteemed audience about uh, Spin, which came out, I believe, in January and is on sale now wherever fine books are sold. Uh, give us uh, once again the the premise of that one. Yeah, um, Spin is about two frenemies, Kaya and Fuse, who have to solve their murder DJ's killing. Um, and not necessarily because they want to, they're forced to by her pretty scary online fandom. And so it becomes a matter of find her killer or deal with the consequences of fans who have come to love her music. And it's a book that's told in three different point of views. Um, it's told in Kaya's and Fuse's alternating point of view but it's also told from the point of view of the murdered DJ. Her name's Paris, and we get her perspective all the way up until the day she dies. And then the other two perspectives pick up from there. And so it's a book that's jumping back and forth in time. Um, it's a thriller, which I do, I think, pretty well, but it's also a love letter to music, um, particularly Virginia music, because it's set in my home state. And we've generated some musical legends and people like Timbaland, Missy Elliott, Pharrell Williams, and so it was sort of my everything but the kitchen sink book or everything and the kitchen sink book where I get to talk about a bunch of stuff I always loved and never could squeeze into anything else. And I think I pulled it off pretty well, if I do say so myself. <laughs> well, you wouldn't have published it if you didn't think that, right? Yeah. yeah. And what, uh, I'm gonna be facetious and, and pretend I haven't done something similar in thrillers, but what does jumping back and forth uh, between those two perspectives, especially when we know that sooner or later one of those perspectives is doomed. What does that allow you to do that a straightforward narrative doesn't? Well, I think it allows you to play with tension more because you can cut away from present day scenes and give a little bit more backstory while knowing the reader's sort of hooked and want to know what's going to happen in the current timeline. And um, this is actually something, it's sort of like a, I, I sort of took it from F. Paul Wilson's um, whole adversary cycle where he had everything built into zero day, which is, and I'm probably, I don't know if I'm talking to people who would understand this, but I'm sure you know F. Paul Wilson and on um, the Repairman Jack books. Um, so, you know, he has a whole bunch of books that lead to one day that is like the end of the world. And that idea of this zero day always stuck with me. And so the, my zero day became, became the day that Paris dies. So all of her perspective leads right up to that. And jumping back and forth from her timeline to the present just gives me opportunities to ratchet up the tension and then cut away. And I think that's like one of the most effective techniques to keep somebody engaged all the way through a mystery. So what's the uh, what's your process for writing a, a young adult thriller versus a middle grade novel? Mm -hmm. um, the process isn't very different. Um, my typical writing process these days involves me 
sort of having like a capsule idea of what I'm trying to do. So it could be as little as a paragraph. Um, pretty much how I describe spin to you. Two frenemies have to solve a murder of a DJ because they're being forced by their online fandom. So that's the seed. And for last, last day, it would just be like these two adventurous cousins freeze time and have to work with strange creatures to stop it. So once I have that premise, the process remains the same. It becomes like, how do I make it make sense? And so I'll typically write three to five pages of a synopsis where I can kind of map out beginning, middle and end. And once I can make it make sense in five pages, I feel more confident expanding it into what will be chapters and eventually a whole novel. So my process is pretty solid. The only time my writing process changes is when I'm writing short fiction, in which case I tend not to have any plan. Um, if I get invited to do an anthology, I just get them to tell me what the theme is and I just see what I can get when I sit down and write. And that's sort of like a great relief for me to kind of break it up and do that process versus my pretty stringent novel writing process. A couple of questions about that. So with that five pages, how detailed are you getting? Do you firmly know your ending and everything that's going to happen in the middle? I tend to know beginning and end before I start writing that synopsis. I like to kind of have an idea of how I want to wrap things up. And then it's a matter of how do you get from point A to point Z. And I don't get very detailed at all. Like I'll try to map out like antagonists, allies, sort of get an idea of who else is in the world. But I always leave room to flex when I actually draft in chapters because I still want to leave some opportunity for surprises. Makes sense. Otherwise, uh, what's the point? If yeah. you already know everything that's going to happen, what's, what's going to keep you having the fun of writing on a daily basis, right? Yeah. And when you're uh, when you're in drafting mode, do you shoot for a daily word count? Um, how do you know if you've had a good day? Um, I try to do five pages. What's that like? That's like 1,250 words, I think. Um, so I try to do five pages a, a day. And I'm, I'm not super hard on myself. Five pages is a good day. But if I'm having a rough day, I'm like, okay, at least get two down. And that's sort of where I live. I try to get two to five pages every day, more so five pages. But I leave room for those days when the energy just isn't there or a bunch of stuff's getting in the way. Well, well let's, uh, you mentioned that you, you're in a couple of anthologies, and I assume you've got some more coming up. I've got to remember, uh, well, you know better than I do. You're in Fresh Ink and Black Enough, right? Yes. And what are the, um, what's the upside of being included in an anthology like that? What is that? What is that? What doors does that open up for you? Well, anthologies, I think, give readers an opportunity to discover you if they haven't been familiar with your novels. And because you tend to be in, in anthologies with writers who are way more well-known than you, you sometimes get the opportunity to meet their audience and, and have some of those readers want to see more of your work. And so I find it's just a good opportunity to expand readership. And, but also it's just fun. Um, I've started out writing short fiction. That's the first sort of sales I ever got. And so I enjoy the opportunity to get back to that from time to time. I also think it's just a useful skill to have in this business. When, uh, when did you first know you were a writer? Do you remember what age you were? Well, I think it was probably around eight years old. I ended up winning um, a contest called Young Authors in my grade school. It was the first time I really ever tried to make up a story. And looking back on it, I realized I was maybe the only person in my class who took it seriously enough 
to write like an original piece. But I won the contest and that praise I got for winning it sort of like sparked something in me because I already, already love to read. And the idea that you could just make up your own stories was fairly new. And so I messed around with like little stories from eight to 11. But then when I read it, that was pretty much the turning point where I'm like, okay, I want to try to do something bigger. And I still didn't like necessarily start a novel right away. That still seemed too huge of a task. But by the time I was 14, um, I did start my first novel. It took me six years to finish. And it was like 700 pages when it was done. And I'll never show anybody because it's horrible. But um, I would say, yeah, probably between the ages of 11 and 14, I'm like, this is kind of my thing. Yeah, it's pretty similar to my background. I was in fifth grade. I uh, won a, a big contest, and I've still got the uh, – you can't see it off camera, but I've still got my uh, ribbon and my trophy over there. Yeah. Um, that counts. Uh, and then about uh, was it sixth grade, everybody was reading it, So, and, and my parents were uh, a little bit more religious than, than other parents, and they, they weren't having Stephen King in their house, so I had to read it in secret. And that was a big book to try to hide. I mean, back <laughs> in the days of uh, hardback, I took up the bottom half of my backpack, and they'd be like, what do what you got in your uh, backpack there? So, oh, just lots of homework. Don't, no, no need to check it. Very I'm going to go to my room and get, get busy on my homework. <laughs> Um, oh, what was my, oh, uh, before we leave the subject of Virginia music, I can't not ask you about the time you met Beyonce and almost broke her toe. Oh yeah. The Beyonce story. So this is, this was many years ago. It was probably 1998. So I would have been 18 and she was 16. And do you remember Boys and Men? Oh, of course. Yeah. So, you know, the huge R&B group at the time, they were coming to our fairgrounds to do a concert. And Beyonce's group, Destiny's Child, was an opening act. They weren't very famous yet. So they performed their set and got off stage. And then it was an intermission while they set up for the main concert. And so me and my buddy were there with our dates. And we decided to just go for a walk, me and him. Um, and as we were walking, we see these four beautiful young women walking with a bodyguard. It's Destiny's Child. And so we're just like, wow, we're amazed. We're like, we're going to go talk to them. Um, just, you know, just young guys being brave and not feeling any fear to go up to this music group and say hi. And, and not feeling any fear, I also wasn't really conscious of my body. And when I walked up to Beyonce, I stepped right on her foot. Um, she was wearing open-toed shoes. And, she <laughs> and the bodyguard was like about to murder me. And she was super cool though. She waved them off. Um, you know, she's like, it's an accident, I'm fine. And um, long story short, me and my buddy asked me if we could take a picture with them. They said, sure. And to this day, I have this photo of me hugging Beyonce and the rest of the members of Destiny's Child. And um, I often end up showing this picture to students when I go and speak in schools because everybody still knows Beyonce and they really get a kick out of seeing young her and young me in this photo. Now my jealousy cup runneth over. <laughs> my next life, I want to come back as Lamar Giles. <laughs> You're getting it done, sir. And uh, I want to talk with you because you're one of the founding members of We Need Diverse Books. Yes. Um, so, of course, the question I want to ask you is, Lamar Giles, have you ever seen a flying saucer and do you believe in them? <laughs> I have never seen a flying saucer, but I find it very hard to believe that in our huge galaxy and overall huge universe that we're the only intelligent life forms. And so, I, I guess I have never seen a UFO but I would not be surprised if aliens exist and we may see them one day. 
I've never seen one either, and you're probably going to see one before me. And then you're going to write me an email and say, Rod, now there's one more reason for you to be super jealous. Like, ah, why does everything good happen to Lamar Giles? Why, Lord? <laughs> you come on, you'll have one with you. But, ah, this is me and my new worry, buddy. <laughs> Well, let's uh, let's talk about we uh, uh, we need diverse books because um, I'm with you. Uh, I think we need uh, we need diverse books. Uh, we we do need them. Um, so why facetiously asking? Uh, why the mission statement of we need diverse books is to put more books featuring diverse characters into the hands of all children. Um, I think that's pretty self-explanatory. But why is that important? And why is it important to you specifically? Um, I think broadly is important because I truly believe that when children can either see more of themselves in books or read books where they can experience cultures unlike their own, I think they naturally develop more empathy. And in my opinion, in our country these days, at least if you watch the news, there tends to be a severe lack of empathy from the top down. Um, and it's, I don't think it's coincidence that the, the, the most unempathetic person in the news today boldly proclaims that he does not read. And I, I think by having books in children's hands early that feature a lot of different people, they'll grow up not being afraid of the other. That's the broad thing. Personally, I can remember that as a young child, there was a point when everybody around me, the other black kids, everybody loved story, everybody loved reading. There came a point when I started to become more obsessed with reading when I wanted to be a writer, but I started to see my friends peel off. And I realized that a lot of it had to do with us never seeing ourselves in the stories that were forced upon us. And as they peeled off, a lot of them became not my friends. As I continued to pursue reading and writing, they would look at me like, you know, what are you doing? That's not for you. There was some bullying, teasing. And I still believe that has to do with them realizing we weren't in the stories we were forced to read. And in a way, I started to realize it too. So there was a period in my teens where writing and reading weren't as important because I also recognized like all the stuff I like, I'm not in. It took me into my late teens to discover books where I felt like people like me were represented, particularly when I read the works of Tanana Reed Du and Stephen Barnes. And I recognized that even though that had brought me back to the dream of wanting to write. I recognized hardly any of these writers wrote for the youth. There was one writer, Walter Dean Myers, that wrote children's books featuring like black kids. So when it was my turn and I finally got a voice, I decided to make it my mission to put the sort of characters in my young adult books that I always wanted to see, but never did when I was young. And to bring that back to We Need Diverse Books, Almost everybody in our organization has a similar experience. They're just from different backgrounds. And so that's why we have sort of a, this, this coalition of super diverse writers and illustrators who are trying to make sure that all children get to see themselves in books going forward. Makes sense to me. And I'm uh, laughing a little bit um, because, you know, I try not to get political on the show, just not because politics aren't important, because I figure people are all living through the same country I am and are just sick of it. But one very valid answer to why do we need diverse books is because we've seen the rise of a racist president and the return of mainstream white supremacy pretty hardcore just recently. So it's good to get that counter message out there as much as possible. Yeah. yeah. 
And I think about uh, my father-in-law has told me this story multiple times. Uh, he um, uh, grew up in Mississippi, uh, God bless him. Uh, and I mean, he was a little black boy in Mississippi and he would look across uh, the river, not the Mississippi River, but the river that ran through his town and watch crosses burning on the other side of the, of the banks there. Uh, and he, he tells me this story of um, one day out of the year, every uh, day they, the teacher would read the class a different picture book. One day out of the year, there was him and there was one other black student in the, in the class and they'd read Little Black Sambo and all the other kids would laugh and the teacher would laugh at him while they read Little Black Sambo. And he very uh, clearly got the idea that they, that you know, that this was a story that was not for him so much as it was a um, means to mock him. Uh, and I could still see the anger in his eyes and he is not uh, as big of a reader. Um, my mother-in-law is, but that that experience, I think, forever tainted books and stories for him of, of not wanting to go back. Um, so where uh, where do we stand now? I'm talking to you today. Um, I just talked with uh, Tomi Adeyemi, uh, author of Children of Blood and Bone at the blog last year. I talked with T.R. Simon, some other mainstream uh, authors of color. I'm talking with Maurice Broadus here um, sometime, I think, in May. Uh, I'll be talking with uh, Daniel Jose Older also in May. So we are seeing more of the types of books that we want to see on shelves that I wasn't seeing. I mentioned at the, at the start of the program back in 2008. Where are we at versus where were we when you um, began working with We Need Diverse Books? And uh, how much further do we still need to go? Um, I think there have been moderate improvements. I think we have a lot further to go but I will speak to what I think is different. I mean, very simply, you said you spoke to Tommy. I mean, you look at the success of her book, among others like Angie Thomas's The Hate You Give and On The Come Up. Um, I spoke to Angie Thomas's uh, a PR person. <laughs> That's about as close as I got there. Yeah, yeah, I imagine she's very busy these days. But um, if you look at the bestseller list where all those books are present, compared to a bestseller list from any time six years ago, I think you see a vast difference in the sorts of representation that that get. And I think that's a result of publishers actually getting behind these books where they wouldn't in the past. Um, that's one major change. Other changes, I think, is we're starting to see a few more diverse individuals make their way into the publishing arena. So, for instance, um, Diversify Imprint that's published in the last last day of summer. That's Kwame Alexander's imprint. Kwame Alexander won the Newbery Medal back, I think, in 2015 for his book, The Crossover. Um, rare thing for a black man to win that award. Things like that are starting to happen more and more. But it's one of those things where we can't rest on our laurels. Um, as good as that is, as great as it is that, you know, there are few select diverse authors having extreme success, I think the true measure of the publishing industry really diversifying is when there's room for mediocre work. Because for many years, I think the standard has been a white author can be anywhere from mediocre to great. But a, an author of color or an author from um, a different background, LGBTQIA, um, different religious background, when their books are published, if they aren't smash hits, publishers use that as ammo to prevent others from coming behind them. As in, hey, we tried to publish that black book, didn't work. 
there's no audience for it. So we're not putting money there in the future. And so I think where you have the true measure of change is when you're no longer seeing publishers treat these books as experiments to either keep moving forward or deny access to the industry. Makes sense to me. So let's uh, obviously you're one of the most talented authors we, we could ha hope to have out there, but you got to find some mediocre friends and get them to publish some books that are, that are kind of, eh. <laughs> then we'll know uh, that we're, we're about where we need to be. Uh, you and I were talking uh, just a little bit about uh, my, our, both our favorite movie of, la of last year was the Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Um, and I uh, was in the theater. My um, nephew, um, from the time he was about three, has been obsessed with Spider-Man. He had Spider-Man shoes, Spider-Man pants, Spider-Man shirt. Uh, we called him Biter-Man. Uh, couldn't, couldn't, couldn't quite make out Spider. Uh, and, you know, when, when uh, you go to the theater and you see Miles Morales up there and he jumps off the building for the first time and, oh, what's up, danger? And he's he's swinging around and I, I'm just weeping openly because it's Spider-Man. But finally, yeah. my nephew doesn't have to wear a white guy on his uh, on his pants if he doesn't want to. He has the option to wear a black Spider-Man. He's got all Black Panther gear now as well. So there is there is progress being made. We've just got a, a ways to go. What uh, what is We Need Diverse Books actively doing to continue to increase that progress now? Oh, well, we have a couple of programs that we're really proud of. And I should point out, um, I stepped down from my leadership duties back in December. Um, so I'm not like affiliated with any of the stuff that's actively going on anymore. I did it for four and a half years. And I just, with my travel schedule right now, I can't do it, but I left it in good hands. But the programs that they're working on, that I'm still very proud of involve our internship program. So this is where a publisher, an agency, or any other entity of publishing can hire a diverse intern for the summer. And if they do, it has to be a paid internship. We dictated that, like no free internships, because again, that's a whole other conversation. But the idea of free labor, particularly in New York City, where it's super expensive to live is ridiculous. But well, that's one of the ways, real real quick diversion, that, that's one of the ways that uh, publishing has been kept so white is by ensuring that they were hiring from their intern pool and their intern pool consisted of people that could afford to do that job for free for, for in New York for so long, right? Absolutely. So if it's a paid internship, those interns can apply to us and we have a set amount of money we have every year where we will supplement their living expenses. So we'll give them money to help them have a comfortable time in New York, to encourage them to intern and maybe eventually get a full-time job because we feel like if we can get more diverse people into the publishing ranks, that's gonna affect acquisitions, it's gonna affect marketing, it's gonna see more people get exposure they never got before. We also have a mentorship program where uh, a budding creator, whether that's a writer or an illustrator, can apply and get teamed up with a working writer or illustrator who can help them prepare to actually come into the industry and make an impact. And then um, another program we have, which I really love, is the Walter Dean Meyer Award, which Walter's books meant the world to me growing up. Um, may he rest in peace. And the award recognizes outstanding diverse work for every year. And this is work that may not get recognized by any of the other major awards that are out there. So this, when this award gets handed to a book, it increases visibility, increases sales, and helps that author or illustrator um, become a more permanent fixture 
in publishing. And so we're, we're doing these little initiatives and this is all on a volunteer basis. Everybody in We Need Diverse Books with the exception of three individuals is a volunteer. So this is all stuff that was put together in people's free time to help change the face of publishing. So for esteemed audience that's listening and getting fired up, uh, what can they do to get involved with uh, We Need Diverse Books? How can they help out? Well, the website is diversebooks.org. So they can go there and there's a couple of things. I believe there's a volunteer link where you can click and kind of talk about things that you're good at. And if you want to volunteer some time, um, the organizers now can maybe find some position where you can help out to help keep the programs going. Um, there's always donations um, because, again, this is all volunteers. Any money that comes in goes to funding programs. Um, and then there's always just spreading the word. Yeah, I always say that's the very least you can do. If you want to help spread diverse books to children, um, it's as simple as finding some yourself, recommending those titles to people. Every little bit helps. I would say the most important thing that anyone listening could do is buy a copy of The Last Last Day of Summer. Uh, buy copies for your library. Buy copies for every child in your life. Uh, buy as many copies as you possibly can, right? Well, I will not object to that. Thank you very much for that suggestion. And while you're at it, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Beast. Okay, let's talk. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about writing because something I wanted to talk uh, with you about. We were just chatting with uh, Stephen K. Smith uh, last week. Uh, had um, uh, Daniel Kenny on not not that long before. I talked with Susan K. Quinn. I'm a big believer in talking with as many self-published, indie-published authors as I can, as well as many as many traditionally published uh, authors as I can. Because at the end of the day, I don't swear allegiance to publishing models. I don't care how a book is published. So long as it's well-published, the readers that receive that book are happy, the writer's happy. If that's happening, then everybody wins. That's It's all gravy to me. You uh, had self-published originally. You'd self-published, what was it? The uh, Live Again Shadow Stories, right? And you went from that to uh, well-published, in quotes, I, I took that from your bio, uh, with fake IDs. So what was the process of, of going from the from one market to the other? Well, so I always felt like if I'm gonna be in this business, I need to know all aspects of the business. And there was a time when I wasn't able to make any headway into big New York publishing. And my thing was, I never was going to let some stranger in New York determine my fate. So I always had these projects that I knew I wanted to try to self-publish more than anything as an education. Um, when I did Live Again, when I did um, The Shadows Gallery and the, um, the other stuff that I self-published, I wanted to learn how the process works. So I sort of viewed those as, as experiments. Um, I sort of I taught myself Photoshop to design covers. I taught myself how to do some layout. I'm not I don't I'm not saying I'm an expert at it. There are things I would certainly change now if I did it again. But it was more so me trying to educate myself and have an avenue to publish if nothing else worked out. And I don't, I don't mean to say that like something's wrong with self-publishing. I just knew I had some stories I felt I wanted to have more control over than what I was trying to sell to New York, because this is the truth about big time New York publishing. You don't always have as much control as people think. Um, I'm very much locked into writing young adult thrillers. That's what most of my publishers want from me. Um, that may change if Last Last Day is successful, but I always knew I wanted to write more things than that. And I wanted avenues to do that if I ever had a story that I didn't want big publishing controlling. 
And so to me, it was it wasn't so much going from self-publishing to traditional. It's that I know both of them and I want to self-publish again when I have time. Time is just a huge factor right now for me to get that stuff together. What uh, what did you learn self-publishing that you couldn't learn just sending out queries to the void? And what is it about self-publishing that makes you want to go back? Um, well, what I learned is that copy editors are very valuable. <laughs> <laughs> That's they are essential, yes, sir. Um, you can. It, it, it's tempting to be a one-man show, and and my self-publishing period. That's what I was. But I understand the difficulty in trying to do everything yourself. And so what I learned from self-publishing is that you need to be able to set aside some funds in order to bring in people that can help, whatever your budget is. Um, I know it can get it can get fairly expensive, so you kind of got to find a sweet spot that works for you. Um, I'm sorry, what was the second part of the question? Uh, also, what uh, what would bring you back to self-publishing? You mentioned if you if you weren't so darn busy uh, promoting the books that uh, have been traditionally published, uh, you might be interested in doing it again at some point. Yeah, I want to come because I started out as a horror writer. Like I, I wanted to be Stephen King, and I think I like having the control over stories like that that I wouldn't necessarily have if I had to go through a traditional publisher. And so I still got some like fairly dark, scary ideas that I want to put out into the world eventually that I don't necessarily want to sell to New York. So uh, should I get the time and opportunity, I may do that again at some point. Would that be under your uh, kid-friendly Lamar Giles name, Giles uh, name, or would you be looking at a pen name at that point? I don't know, um, because you know when I was doing self-publishing, I was LR Giles, so I was using my initials. So I don't know if I would just go back to that. I'd have to really consider it because when I came into children's publishing, there was a lot of discussion between me and editors about like, you know, do you want to use your first name? Do you want to go with the initials? And I felt like it was better to keep my adult scary stuff separate from the young adult stuff felt like just a, a separate start. So I may just go back to my initials and it's the return of L.R. Giles. That's something that's uh, cracking me up with uh, Maurice Broadus, who's written some of the uh, most terrifying stories I've, I've ever read. Uh, and he wrote the, uh, oh gosh, he's going to kick my butt when he sees me because I can't remember the name of his King Arthur trilogy. Yeah. Um, but uh, really dark stuff. He's, he's got a, a slight spoiler. He's got a, a girl chewing razor blades at one point. Uh, and he's gone from that. Now he's got the usual suspects uh, coming out here in, in May. That's very kid friendly, very middle grade. And it's just like, oh, from the author of the razor blade story comes nice middle grade story just for you. <laughs> you know, I, I, I've thought about this quite a bit, and I may actually backtrack on that answer because I recall, I think it was Dean Koontz who talked about all the stuff that he wrote under pen names before he became Dean Koontz. And I, I believe I saw him say he wishes he'd always used his name because there's power in using your real name. So I don't know. I think maybe Maurice is on to something. Maybe it's better to just keep your name no matter what you're doing and just make people understand that you have many facets. Yeah, I've uh, found just to make it easy. I'm not hiding. Um, mm -hmm. I've got, you know, my middle grade and my my horror stories both behind me here. Um, but I found just saying Robert Kent for the horror stuff, Rob Kent for the uh, kitty stuff just makes a nice clear break that, OK, I can probably read Bandicoot Bones and the giant robot bees. And there's not going to be a character named Sexy Jesus that brings prophecy of flying saucers, which you are going to run into in the, in the Book of David. And uh, you're, you're certainly not going to run in any kind of profanity. Um, so well, let's talk about 
your experience self-publishing versus now uh, traditionally publishing. I was just where to set your arc. I was just looking at the back of your arc here and the uh, national uh, marketing and publicity campaign that your publisher is providing for you. They've got you at conference promotions. You just got back from Hong Kong talking about spin. You told me you're about to, you're going to be here in Indianapolis uh, Saturday. Yes. Yes, that's correct. I'm going to be a rosy con. So those of you Indianapolis native listeners, um, if you can get to RosieCon, go to RosieCon. I'm going to see if I can get to RosieCon, and, and uh, maybe we'll both be there to say hello. Yeah, uh, and uh, what uh, what is your traditional publisher doing for you that you weren't able to do when you were self-publishing? Well, um, there are many things that I probably couldn't have pulled off on my own. One, I think you mentioned conference promotion. So this is something I wasn't even aware of when I was self-publishing or even through my first two traditionally published novels, which were with a different publisher. I didn't realize there were all these industry conferences all throughout the year where if you, particularly in children's books, where you can go and talk to educators, librarians, booksellers. And if your publisher wants to support your book to those audiences, they'll send you there. I didn't know that was a thing until I got into traditional publishing and I published my third novel, Overturned. Um, I was so ignorant to it that when that publisher was like, yeah, Lamar, we want to send you to the Decatur Book Festival for you to promote Overturn, I asked them, like, well, how much of that do I need to pay because I need to budget it if it's expensive? And they were like, no, no, no. It's, we send you. We cover that because we want you in front of these audiences to speak. That's something, like I said, I didn't know. I couldn't have pulled off in self-publishing because it becomes a thing where I think the conference organizers only have a certain amount of slots. So the publisher sort of has to pitch you to them. And also the expense of it, um, those trips can easily run into a couple of thousand dollars when you're talking about plane tickets and hotel rooms and food. And that's just blew my mind that when a publisher has faith in you, they'll send you to these places to help you expand your audience. Um, with, with Last Last Day, we're going on tour. And this will be my first time going on an official tour. And we're gonna have, I think we're gonna have like a tour bus. And we're gonna go city to city for like six days, like like the Beatles or something. And uh, that's mind blowing to me. Uh, again, the expense of that, if you were on your own, you're talking about thousands and thousands of dollars. So I think that's a huge difference. And it's unfortunate that it, it the access to that sort of thing becomes limited by personal finance. Um, I couldn't do it on my own. That's uh, something that even those that are, are traditionally published aren't uh, necessarily experiencing. Yep. You really have to be an author of the, the caliber of Lamar Giles uh, to get that full experience. Although this isn't your first rodeo because you've got how many books out now? Is this number seven or number eight? Um, traditionally published last day will be number five, I think. Okay. Yeah, but I've got, yeah, I've got another one coming out next year. And, and so um, and we're actually going to do a sequel to last last day. So that'll be cool. Um, but yeah, it's not my first time out, but like all my time on the road has typically been either um, like one-off situations, not like a tour. Um, and like, I don't think people always understand that. Like a tour is like a really concentrated period of time um, right around the book's release to kind of get you out in front of people right away. Um, I think a lot of that helps if the publisher wants the book to appear on say like the New York Times bestseller list that sort of thing. Um, but I, I have spent a lot of time on the road just in one-off situations um, to promote the various books. 
Yeah, I'm not able to get on the road as much as I'd like to, which is one reason why I'm forever doing these online events, because yeah. uh, I'm, I'm out there on the weekends, uh, weekend warrior. But during the week, I've got my five-year-old. And if I'm going to a book signing, he's probably coming with me. And he is not amenable to meeting bunches of strangers. <laughs> and that's the beauty. But that's the beauty of like our digital media, social media. Um, it allows for people to reach audiences when they can't pull off, like going on the road to these conferences. Like I said, I couldn't do it on my own. Um, and and I, re I totally respect like people using their online platform to get the word out. I mean, it's pretty much all we have when we're trying to do it ourselves. When uh, we're talking about horror, I never get tired of talking about horror. Uh, and I think I think it's their natural bedfellows. Sometimes people give me a, a strange look that I'm sure you've gotten as well. That, well. Do you write for children or do you write horror for adults? And I think they're both very imaginative genres. You've really got to have uh, just just a lot of fun going through your, your head to, to write either something really scary um, for adults or something that's kind of scary, but also fun for children. They're really there's two sides of the same coin. The famous example I always go to is Roald Dahl. Yeah. Um, wrote uh, lots of uh, wonderful horror stories, uh, as well as <laughs> some now uh, fairly racist, sexist children's literature that's still classic that we love. Yeah. <laughs> I was uh, on uh, the Dream Gardens podcast not that long back, uh, not that long ago, and uh, the premise of that show is authors come on and they talk about their favorite book growing up, and mine was The Witches by Roald Dahl. And um, I was like, all right, well, I better brush up on this. It's been a few years since I read it, and I read some articles getting prepared, and I discovered this 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 whole series of articles about what a sexist book it was. I'm like, no, not my beloved Roald Dahl. And then I reread it. Like, oh, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's pretty sexist right there. Dang it. <laughs> Time marches on. That's too bad. So in uh, talking about horror, what um, what are some aspects of horror? Because, you know, with your young adult thrillers, you're allowed to work in murder, some pretty dark stuff. What is it that you that you need to go beyond the young adult thriller market to reach within horror that you wouldn't be able to do uh, within traditional publishing? Um, I would say like some of the more darker graphic stuff that I like to touch on. I mean, I think about um, Oh, and, and this isn't necessarily graphic, but think about something like Jordan Peele's Get Out, um, which is basically like racial horror. Um, I, I, I hate to say it. I don't know if any or all of my publishers would be necessarily open to me doing something overt like that. And maybe that's something I want to play with on my own if I if get back into self-publishing eventually. I just want to be able to tell like darker stories without the limitations. Because when you're dealing with traditional publishing, like, and, and, and I don't know if a lot of people know this, but it can be as little as, hey, we would prefer you not have any curse words in this book because there are certain markets where if there's even a single curse word, that market may not carry the book. And so that's just stuff sometimes you don't want to deal with. You want to be loose. You want to be able to say the exact phrase you want. And depending on the publisher and the goal, you may not have that freedom in traditional publishing. And so when I think about horror stories, I don't want any limitation on what I can touch. And I can't guarantee that'll be the case if I try to do it with some of my publishers right now. Understandably so, and that's a business. They have a business model that they found to be successful and I can't complain because it's helped me. But it, I do find it weird sometimes when I'm writing stuff and I really want to curse and I'm thinking I can't because of, XYZ market. 
makes sense to me. Unfortunately, um, I I love uh, I I love books with uh, plenty of profanity and, and books without. In fact, that was uh, one of my running jokes with uh, All Together Now, uh, as is told in the first person uh, narration from the perspective of a 15 year old boy. Uh, and he edits out all the swearing. He tells you he's going to do it in chapter one. It's like, it's the apocalypse. There's been plenty of swearing. My grandma, Lisa, you said that, uh, I don't remember how he phrases it. It's been a few years since I wrote that one. Uh, but he basically says, there's not going to be any swearing. Don't worry about that. And then proceeds to relate just the most grotesque, brutal violence you would ever want to read chapter after chapter of, of, of children being uh, uh, terribly injured by, the, by zombies, uh, adults, um, really graphic, disgusting stuff that would make uh, Jack Ketchum go, ooh, ooh, I don't know about that. Uh, but no swearing. Don't, don't worry about that. And, and very little sexual content. So it's a young adult. <laughs> Uh, but you can't do that every time. Hopefully after uh, uh, Us comes out and makes three times what uh, Get Out made, uh, <laughs> publishers will maybe start to look around and say, okay, well, what, what do you have for us in that vein? And you'll you'll have that option. Yeah, yeah, I shall see. What's um, uh, a couple of other questions for you? Oh, I wanted to talk to you about your time at uh, Disney World. Um, we're, we're, we're just bipolar on this, uh, on this show. We're, we're back and forth between all kinds of topics, but I know you were, they don't call it a janitor. What do they call it when you're at Disney world? Uh, showkeeper. Yes. Showkeeper. <laughs> you're still doing a janitor's duties, but you're, you're showkeeping. How did, uh, working, um, for the, you know, the happiest place on earth, how did that frame your perspective of entertainment specifically for children? Is there anything you learned during your time there that you've been able to bring to middle grade writing? Yeah. Um, one thing is, you know, and, and this is particularly when I meet children, is do not break the illusion. And what I mean by the illusion is, like, when people come to Disney World, they're there to have fun. They're there to be happy. So you can't let your bad day ruin that experience. Like, Literally, that's like a fireable offense. You have to maintain the happiest place on earth for the people you meet when you're a Disney World employee. And I think my personal opinion is when I meet my readers, I, and it's not so much an illusion, I just want to make sure they walk away feeling good about the interaction. So it doesn't matter if I've had a bad day. It doesn't matter if something's going on at home that has me upset. When I meet a kid who's enjoying my book, I need to make sure when they walk away from me, I haven't destroyed their good impression of me or the book because I've been there. I've been in that position where I've met an author whose work I enjoy. And when I met them, they were a jerk. I mean, like unapologetic, call me stupid, that sort of thing. Like it's it, and it's the sort of thing that makes me never want to read the work again. But I, and, and, I, and I never understood why anyone would act like that. Like these are people who've taken their time and money um, to support your craft. And so that's something that has translated from Disney World to me is that when I'm meeting the public, I'm going to try to give them the best experience possible, regardless of how I'm really feeling, because I don't need to put my bad stuff on them. So what um, just some pointers for uh, those middle grade writers who, who want to go and do likewise. Um, obviously, don't don't call your readers stupid. I don't know who did that to you. I'm not going to ask you because I don't. I try not to offer shame. I say the name, but you would probably recognize it if I told you. <laughs> Must be somebody making lots of money who feels confident enough they can just burn through a few uh, readers per <laughs> per appearance. But what are some practical things aside from smile a lot? What uh, what are practical tips you'd have for authors interacting with young readers? 
let them talk. Um, because what I found is when I interact with my young readers, they tend to have something they want to tell me, whether it's something like, hey, I love the book, or sometimes it's criticism. Sometimes it'll be like, hey, I like the book, but I wish you'd done this differently. And my thing is, let them speak and then affirm their instinct to tell you. And, you know, I thank them, always thank them for their time. And I always tell them, which is honest, I'm going to consider everything they said. Obviously, I can't change a book that's already published. But if it's a piece of criticism that, that is valid, and most of it is, it's something I'll keep in mind for the next book. So it's just a matter of letting them know that their opinions are welcome and that their time is appreciated. I think that's a small thing you can do for someone who's taking the time to buy and or read something that you wrote. It's a firm rule of mine is if we're in a critique situation where you've come to me and you said, okay, I'm gonna publish this book, give it to me, how can I make it better? I'm not gonna hold back, I'm gonna, I, I might not be right, but by God, you will get my honest opinion about what I think would make the book better. Versus if your book is published, I will never comment on what things might have been improved because you know, worst case scenario, or best case scenario with that, um, one, I might just, uh, one, I might be wrong and might, and might irritate you, but uh, two, I might tell you the absolute perfect thing that really would have made the book that much better. And there's nothing you can do about it because it's published, it's over. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's no upside to uh, telling an author the, um, uh, the absolute criticism you might have uh, for their book. But that's me, I'm, I'm in the business and I, uh, I'm, I'm extra sensitive to it. I know young, young readers are not the least bit shy about oh, yeah. telling you exactly what they think. And, and, and the thing is, like, I don't ever, like, obviously, you know, sometimes that can stink, but I don't ever want to put a young person in a position where they feel like they regret it speaking up. Um, that's certainly, certainly there are times when, when a little more tact might be appreciated, but I mean, this is what I signed up for. Um, it, it, to me, it's similar to the reviews you see on Amazon or Goodreads. I don't go out of my way to read those, but, you know, that, that's the contract we signed. When you buy that book, if you want to give me the best review or the worst review, that is well within your rights. I'm not going to fight it. I just like I said, if I happen to come across some feedback I think might be useful, I try to incorporate it into something in the future. Yeah, try not to look at reviews. I um, I won't claim that I don't because I, I just don't have that 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 uh, personal strength yeah. uh, of character. Uh, but it. At a certain point, that review is not really about you, uh, and nor is the book. You should be moving on to whatever you're going to be writing next because that book is done. It's in the past. Right. Um, yeah, I don't go out of my way to look at them. But, you know, sometimes stuff will just find its way to you, I found, particularly in the in the digital age. Like, people will tag you and stuff. And, you know, um, I always say this. Like, when I read a bad review, I give myself a day to grieve. <laughs> like, like, you know, you, you're human. You can't help feeling a little bit personal sting when someone downs something you did. But I always say, you know, you get a day to grieve and then you move on. Yeah, I try not try not to do a, even a full day. Um, I'll just go, uh. what really drives me nuts is when I know they're wrong and I want to write them immediately and say, no, here's why you're wrong. Yeah, and I'm never going to do that because I would never want to get that email from an, I've gotten that email from authors and I, 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 I mock them. Yeah. <laughs> I think that, I think that go horribly wrong for the author too like it's, it seems like a good idea in the moment but that has much more potential to go bad so yeah everybody who writes resist that urge there's there's no upside to that and i've gotten that letter and i you know i, I am not reviewing books as regularly at middlegradeninja.com 
um, available now uh, for anybody who's listening or, or watching. Um, but uh, I give everybody five stars. That's my review policy. I don't list the negative qualities on a book. Yeah. So that I'm getting those emails from authors arguing with me when I didn't even say anything negative about the book. It's like, come on, man. This is this is a 700-word email. Put that towards your next manuscript. Your writing's half done for the day. <laughs> you make a good point about being in the business because now that I'm in it, like I've had the opportunity, like I've had to offer to review for certain publications. And my whole thing is I'm not going to write a bad review. So if it's a matter of me getting to pick the books so I can pick books that I love and give them praise, I'll do it. But if you're asking me to pick somebody's work apart, that's just not my job. I, I don't feel like that's something I want to do. I've been on the other side of that. Um, I just and so I've told people in the past, like, hey, there are probably better critics you can find, because if it's up to me, I'm going to write positive reviews for books I love and nothing else. There's always something positive you can find to say about a book, even if it's just this book was in English, which made it easier for me to understand. I really appreciate that. Um, let's uh, move on from reviews. I wanted to talk a little bit more about, I'm never mispronounce her name terribly, because I always do, it's, it's Tannerie Drew. Oh. Uh, you, you, you mentioned her earlier and her husband and, and the impact their writing had on you. What impact was that? What was it specifically about her that, that spoke to you when you were a young reader? Because when, when I was, this was like the mid to late 90s when I first discovered Tanana Reeve Du and Stephen Barnes. And you have to understand, growing up, like when I was looking for black characters, the teachers and librarians around me tend to recommend two books, Roots and the Autobiography of Malcolm X, both by Alex Haley. Those are the books. Neither of which have happy endings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the books that came up over and over. In the mid-90s, there started to be like a few authors who were black who were gaining success. There was Terry McMillan. Eric Jerome Dickey came comes to mind, Carl Weber. Um, but they were all writing like sort of these adult romantic situations. Good books, but at 18 years old, I wasn't really in the headspace to understand a 28-year-old marketing executive who's in love with the CEO of this other company. That's you know. So, I would have thought that might have made you a little bit smoother earlier, but judging by your interaction with Beyonce, no. <laughs> <laughs> But to not read Du and Stephen Barnes, they also wrote for adults, but it was like black people who lived in the suburbs. Um, a computer programmer in, in one of Stephen Barnes' books, he actually teams up with a Navy SEAL. That's a whole thing I wouldn't relate to either, but it was a fun book. Um, but to not read Du's My Soul to Keep, again, these are adult black characters, but they they live in a house and they drive like a Honda Accord. And that's my mom. You, see, you know what I'm saying? And, and it, this is people I actually understand. And coming to that at that age, it awakened two things in me. I'm like, first of all, there are publishers out there who are willing to publish stories about just contemporary, regular black folks that I know. These are and two, these are black writers who have that job to produce the work. So maybe it's a job I can get to. And so that was really the thing that motivated me when I came across um, Miss Dews and Mr. Barnes's work. Um, again, it was coming across Walter Dean Myers, who was doing the same thing for children that really sort of awakened in me, like, you know, I could write this for youth as well. Makes sense to me. 
Let's uh, let's do just some straightforward, uh, deep in the weeds, nerdy writer talk. Uh, what's the average word count you're shooting for with your young adult thrillers? At least seventy five thousand words. Um, I think probably on the last two books, I probably got closer to ninety. Um, but I'm trying to do at least seventy five. And with middle grade, I, it it would be somewhere around fifty. Do you have a specific word count that you like to aim for for each chapter? Um, not so much on the young adult. I, I kind of let it go however it goes. With the middle grade, and, and this isn't anything anyone told me to do, and I don't know if it's necessarily wise, but I try to keep chapters around a thousand words, which is four pages. And there are several that go maybe six pages or seven pages, but I try to keep it right around four pages because I was following sort of that James Patterson model uh, short chapters keep the readers going. Um, and that was my thinking there. Um, that's definitely not anything I dictate to anybody. I don't know if it even makes sense, like, but that's where I was when I was writing last, last day. Well, it read extremely fast. And like I say, every chapter had a little bit of something, a little little thing to propel me on to the next chapter. And it was happening frequently enough. I, I wanted to make sure I asked, because I, I assume that's uh, uh, intentional. Yeah. And have you written uh, the sequel yet, or where where are you with the sequel? I I wrote most of a first draft, um, and it, it, I'm sort of in this weird space now where um, I didn't finish the first draft because I had to show some pages to my editor in order to get the illustrator started, Dapo. Um, and because when I show her the pages, she just instinctively came back with notes. So since I wasn't done with the first draft, but now I had some notes. I'm like, I don't really want to finish it as is because these notes are going to change everything. So I wrote like 80% of a draft. And now I need to start the second draft, even though I never finished the first, <laughs> if that makes sense. No, it does. I'm a big believer in trying to get some feedback early on. I don't like to write an entire manuscript. My, my process is a little bit slower, a little bit more dogged. And when I usually, when I finish my first draft, it's a couple of polishes away from being final yeah. because I'll get uh, people to, to jump in after 20,000 words, after 40,000 words. Don't tell me how to fix everything once I've already figured this out and, and written the ending. Tell me now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's, that's where I am. I'm, I'm I'm going into a second second ish draft, and um, what are the uh, here's another nerdy question. But what are the most uh, effective marketing techniques that you're currently employing, and what have you found works best to to sell more books? <laughs> what I found to be most effective is hire help, um, and I know that's not an option for everybody. It's it's a strain on my finances, but I actually hired a publicist, an independent publicist to help me with last, last day. And she's done a tremendous amount of work in terms of my digital presence, in terms of reaching out to people who might be interested in interviewing or reviewing the book. Um, I have found that it's just very difficult for me to write, travel, and be my own marketer. Um, the publisher will try to do whatever they can, uh, whatever they deem is appropriate for the project, but I always feel like you need to do more yourself. Because um, when you're talking about a publicist at a publishing house, they may be responsible for 50 books in the same season. And so you you just there's no way for you to get the sort of attention that you probably want. And again, I just I don't have there's not enough hours in the day for me to be the sort of marketer I need to be to take my career to the next level. So I have employed a publicist to help out with this book. Um, it has not been cheap. 
but I think it's probably helped in intangible ways. And I hope tangible ways once the book is released. I mean, it got you booked on this podcast, which is obviously the most famous any any author could ever be. <laughs> what uh, what's the process of uh, of seeking out and finding a good uh, PR person? Um, so I I didn't do a ton of work here. I, my literary agent, we've been together almost ten years now, and so I consider her more of a friend than a business partner. But we are business partners. Uh, I've had a sort of dream relationship with my agent, and so we'll often have strategic meetings. And so I asked her because she has access to things in the business that I don't know about. And I simply asked like, hey, if I wanted to get some help on pushing the new book, do you know of anybody? And she gets, she was able to give me a few names. I could reach out to them and talk to them. And I ended up um, hiring a publicist from North Carolina that I really liked. Um, I liked some of the stuff she'd done for some colleagues. And it was just a matter of making sure our personalities clicked. We understood the direction we wanted to take the market and effort into and making sure the budget was in place so that I could actually pay her her her, her stated fee. So it was more, important. you know, getting references and then checking them out. And uh, just to plug them both, uh, I'm assuming they're both seeking more clients. Who, who is your uh, literary agent? Who is your PR person? Um, I'm with the Andrea Brown Agency. And my literary agent is Jamie Weiss Chilton. And then um, the publicist I'm working with now, her name is Brandy Hand. Brandy with an I. And so um, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank. She, she has a company name, but I'm drawing a blank because I just always talk to her as Brandy. But if you were to Google Brandy Hand, it would come up. Speaking of uh, things I was supposed to remember, it's the Knights of uh, Brighton Court. That is Maurice Broaddus' King Arthur trilogy, the... The Knights of Brighton Court and his book coming up is The Usual Suspects. Uh, make sure you register for MoCon at mauricebroadus.com for me. That way, the next time I see Maurice, it's not awkward. Woo. Maurice <laughs> awesome. Everybody listening, if you don't know, Maurice is awesome. One of the uh, one of my favorite people. I could uh, talk about Maurice all day, but he'll have his own episode coming up, so we'll do that. Um, do you have any predictions about what the future of publishing looks like? What uh, what do you expect is going to change? Um, I think we'll start to see just more diverse representation across the board as more people leave the industry and others come in to replace them with some different ideas, um, particularly people growing up in a sort of tumultuous political time like we're in now. Um, so I would anticipate you're going to see a lot of um, art speaking truth to power um, for many, many years. I think you're going to see a lot of books that would be classified as resistance books. Um, there's a book coming out. It may already be out um, called Internment. And I forget the author's name. It's just you have to understand I was a National Book Award judge last year. I read so many books that I cannot remember things with instant recall anymore. But as book internment is about a modern day situation where Muslims are being sent to internment camps in America. Um, I heard the book is fantastic. If it's not out already, I think it's going to be one of those books that comes out and instantly hits the bestseller list. I don't think that's a book you would have seen three years ago. Um, I think you'll see more things like that speaking to uh, oppressed parties and, and showing readers, again, ways to be more empathetic for folks whose lifestyle and culture aren't like your own. Yep, and it's, it's never been more necessary, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. 
But we won't talk about politics and the rise of Death Eaters in America. We'll, we'll move on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's go to lighter, lighter subject matter. <laughs> but, uh, why do you write and what keeps you writing? Um, well, I write primarily because I enjoy it. It's always been an activity I've enjoyed my whole life. In terms of why I write now, because I have the access and position that I do, I feel like I have the opportunity to present stories to children who need to read them. Um, the sorts of stories I couldn't find when I was growing up. And so I find it immensely gratifying to be able to create young African-American characters who can be heroes and mirrors to young African-American readers, but also be entertaining to anybody who wants to come and pick that book up. Primarily, I'm an entertainer, but I enjoy putting those characters out into the world that I didn't see when I was growing up. That was something that uh, I liked. I appreciated a lot about Otto and Sheed, uh, is that they're they're very clearly black boys, but they're just boys, and they're they're boys that are off to have an adventure, no different than any other middle grade uh, character that you you might have encountered, except a little funnier maybe. And that was important to me. Um, I purposely wrote the last last day of summer to swing away from what's traditionally been accepted as the appropriate black story, uh, meaning that it's not heavy into necessarily like civil rights or modern day oppression. These are boys who are allowed to exist and have fun. Now you've read the book, so you know there is um, a little bit of personal crisis that comes up for the boys, but I keep it firmly in their familial situation and not so much the broad, this is the struggle of black people because I think there are just a bunch of writers who are doing that well and better than I could and so I wanted the opportunity to just write an adventure in the style of the ones we read when we were young. It's so important. My wife uh, always uh, gets on me. She reads all my stuff. And if I if I ever start doing a um, uh, what's called a magic Negro character, uh, like our, our mutual hero, Stephen King, has done multiple times, she'll come up behind me and she'll give me your hands, boss, doing her her John Coffey impersonation, or uh, we both make fun of, what's that terrible Will Smith movie, The Legend of Bagger Vance. Oh yeah. The rhythm of the game, just like the rhythm of life, which I still don't know what that means. That, that has never made sense to me. And it's, it's so important to write characters that can just be characters. Yes. And that don't have to carry the weight of, this is what this means about the world, because you don't find that with other characters and in other cultures, uh, or even within our own. And let's bring forth more mediocre writers of color to write <laughs> mediocre books about characters that just find love, that just get away from a killer clown, that just, well, that's a bad example because that, that book does have a lot of meaning placed on all those characters, but a book that's just a, uh, a thriller. It was maybe my third or fourth time through it. Well, as I was getting a little bit older, I was reading, like, there's a lot of racism in this book. What is that all about? And then slowly but surely start to click, oh, that 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 has thematic significance. There's there's more here than just get away from the killer clown. But, <laughs> you know, and I, so I loved it and actually enjoyed Mike Hanlon's character a great deal. I think it's one of the better black characters that King has written. I cannot stand what happened to Mike in the movie, the new adaptation. That's probably another conversation. I could probably rant for 10 minutes. Well, oh, let's have it. What, uh, what annoyed you about uh, Mike? Okay, so if you remember, the, you know the book. So you know the losers, when they left Derry, their town as kids pretty much became their vocation. So like, you know, um, Bill's the writer, Ben's the architect. Um, 
Mike was the historian of the group. And so he went on to become the librarian that stayed in town and became like the lighthouse keeper. But they took the historian role from Mike and gave it to Ben in the new movie. So now Mike has this weird, tragic backstory of his parents dying in a fire. And from what I understand in the part two, he's going to be a junkie librarian. And I, I can't tell you how furious I was when I was reading what they're doing to his character going forward. Because because the thing I'm thinking is, if you made Ben the historian in the new adaptation, why isn't he the one to stay back? Let Mike leave and become rich and famous yeah. all the other losers. Because and, and people argue, well, no, Ben has to get thin and he has to fall in love with Beverly. I'm like, you could still do that and have him be this junkie librarian. I like, if anything, him being the junkie librarian might help with the weight loss. I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's just one of those things where it's like, if you're giving, if you're sticking to the old model of their childhood talent being their vocation, then keeping Mike in Derry while everyone else goes off to be successful, famous, and rich no longer makes sense other than the creators who are working on that project cannot picture a black man having that sort of success like the other white characters. Well, now I'm mad too. <laughs> <laughs> Why has it got to be a junkie librarian? That's the, part, that's the part that got me the most. Like, okay, I can deal with he's still a librarian if you just want to stick to, I guess, canon. Though, again, he wasn't the childhood historian, so that doesn't really make that much sense. But in the movie, Ben's the one who loves the library. He's the one that has the history on Derry. But the idea that he has to be a junkie librarian, he has to be damaged because he stayed in Derry, that was never necessary in the book and doesn't add anything of value to the character. Ben still got to be the architect in the movie, too, so that's not fair at all. I had different problems. I was mad because they, they left out the mummy, the, they left out the werewolf. It was just a clown or the, the, the painting at one point. And never, I don't know if it was just a rights issue and they, they couldn't get all the cool monsters. But now I'm mad about that. <laughs> I was also mad that they, they had no problem dropping an F-bomb. And I don't mean the, I, uh, the slur for uh, homosexuals. Yeah. Uh, but, but they didn't drop an N-bomb, which is that is one story what I, where I would say the racism is absolutely essential to everything that's wrong with dairy and that's that, that the losers are, are fighting against. Yeah, they worked really hard to swing away from the racist aspect. I'm like, you know, I guess it's just one of those things where whoever, like I say, whoever the producers and the director are here, they obviously have some sort of vision that I just don't agree with. Um, I'll still, obviously, I'll probably still see the movie. I enjoyed a lot of the changes they made, but that really irritated me. I did like that they moved it to the 80s because there's that one shot where they've got the marquee in the background and it's Batman and Lethal Weapon. I was like, oh, yeah, that's my childhood. And there's a Nightmare on Elm Street 5 poster. Oh, yeah, that was great. So, what heck? <laughs> Although in the in the defense of the filmmakers, that is a story that even if you had a, a whole uh, Netflix series to adapt, um, yeah. would be would be tricky. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'll admit, largely I agree with many of the changes. I think they did a lot of smart things to translate it to modern film. But um, yeah, they they messed with Mike. Um, I didn't like that at all. I have a Mike Hanlon pop figure on my bookshelf behind me. Um, I, that just always dug that dude. I love Mike Hanlon, and I, I love that story. Stephen King has written, he's he's had mixed success with characters of color, uh, to put it. Uh, because I, Dick Halloran is the one that usually bothers me when I go back and read them. And I see what you're trying to do there, but no, nah, that's, that's, that's a little racist. Yeah. Um, 
but my wife's favorite is Detta Walker. Have you read the uh, Dark Tower? Um, some of it. I'll be honest. Like, I never took to the Dark Tower the way a lot of people did. Um, so I think I read. I probably read the first three books. So I know what you're talking about. But um, it's been many years since I visited that series. That's one of my favorite examples of just a, a writer that does not care, that's just going for it, doesn't care what you think, because he was already getting hate mail for, for being racist, and then to come up with a character like Detta Walker, and to just go for it, and there is a version of the audiobook of the drawing of the two, it's been replaced, it was replaced once by Frank uh, Mueller, I think is how you say his name, and then it was replaced by George Goodell later. But originally it was read by Stephen King. So to hear Stephen King performing Dead of Walker, like this man does not care that what you think about what he's doing. He this is his art, he owns it, he's going for it. That he there's an interview where he tells a story of when the Carrie movie first came out in the 70s. And he tells a story about going to see it at a black theater in Boston. And there's some accents that he does for crowd reactions that make me cringe so badly. And I'm like, I know you don't think what you're doing right now is wrong, but please don't tell this story anymore. I love you. <laughs> I read that interview. Was it something like she, I'm, I'm not going to do the accent, but she ain't never going to be right now. I think was the gist of it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I like do it on video. And it's like, no, no, never do that again. I don't know. Well, like I said, he's hit and miss. I would, uh, well, yeah, Stevie King, I doubt is uh, listening to us now, but I thought I was a little bit put off by, um, oh, what's the, the end of Watch is the last one. What's the first one in that? Mr. Mercedes. Uh, and he's got the uh, modern day young black Robin type character that's helping our old detective that's still doing the the voice that was kind of funny when Richard Trouser did it because he was stuck firmly in the 50s when that would have been a thing. But now in the in the 2000s, I wasn't going to bring it up, but that was my latest example of he's still not getting it right. Um, <laughs> but yeah. he did a yeah. couple times. Yeah. Um, what What's your favorite recent King book? My favorite recent King, probably Revival. Me too. Me too. Um, I think that's probably one of the scarier books he's done. And it's such a good slow burn. Um, I actually got a chance when that book came out, me and my mom got tickets to hear him speak about it in Washington, D.C. And so we got a chance to see him um, read from it live. And I, I think it's probably my favorite King book of the last decade. Just more evidence to the list that I need to come back in my next life is the large Isles. <laughs> I took my mom to see Yanni. She was she was thrilled, and you know everybody likes Yanni, but that wasn't no Stephen King. <laughs> it was a good time. I mean, it was it was right around me and my mom's birthdays because like, we both have birthdays in November. And um, growing up, you probably remember this. Stephen King used to consistently publish in the fall, and so every birthday, I could consistently expect a new Stephen King book. And so it was just really like a nice thing for me and my mom to get to do together. I still look forward to them every year um, with uh, varied success. But enough Stephen King talk. Let me ask you uh, another question, and we'll we'll call it a podcast here. Um, But one question I like to ask everybody uh, is, what is the one piece of advice you wish someone had given to you when you were first getting started that would have maybe made a significant amount of difference for you? Practice finishing. Because in my early days, I would quit a lot. And this was like across the board. It wasn't just writing. Like I'd, I'd start karate class and quit. 
I start a sport and quit. And I wish if we're talking in life and in writing, I wish there was someone to talk to me about sticking to things even when they got hard. It's a lesson I learned eventually, but I wish I learned it much sooner because I think I would have developed as a writer faster. And it's not to say that you would never abandon any project, but I think you should be finishing more things than you stop. And it took me a long time to learn that I would get into that middle part of a short story or even a novel. And you know how it is. That's probably where it's the hardest because you still have a long way to go. You may not be feeling like everything's coming together. And and I would just say, hey, I want to go into my next idea. And so I would have like all this unfinished work for a long time. And so I just wish there was someone who could stress to me, practice finishing. Even if you sometimes fail, go into it with the goal that you're going to complete this task. And I just think I would have been a, a better writer quicker. That makes 100 percent sense to me. I still have uh, trouble with the ending, especially the longer the story, the harder the ending is for me, not because I don't know it, uh, but because I'm, I'm okay plowing through the middle. I'm okay with the endless revisions, but coming up on the end when I know I'm going to have to say goodbye to the characters, that's, that's a hard moment. Yeah. yeah. I, I still have trouble with endings. Like That's why it takes like anywhere from three to five drafts for me to get it right. Um, I'll spend a lot of time just trying to make sure I'm satisfied with the ending. And, and I'll be honest, there's some of my stuff to where I'm not, I'll, I mean, because you know how it is, you'll publish something and then you'll think like, I could have done this differently. And obviously it's too late. And that's something you have to live with. But what's the saying is, um, it, it, art's never perfect, it's just done. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. You just uh, sooner or later you abandon it and then you're gotta move on to something else. That is one thing that I'm pretty good about is I will uh, wait several months after uh, finishing my final, final, final draft before publishing. So if there's anything else still calling me, calling to me about the story that I can maybe fix, I still have the time to do that before it goes out to the world. Yeah. Once it's uh, out there in the world, I don't want to go back and do some Greedo shop first nonsense. You don't want to <laughs> mess with what uh, what essentially belongs to your readers at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm just going to bring it back to Stephen King for a second. Oh, you know, sure. he's, he's one of the rare writers who's had the opportunity to alter some things in later editions, like with The Stand. Um, um, should we all write long enough, maybe we'll have some chances to fit, to change some things. But I'm like you said, I, I don't want to obsess about what I could have done differently. The Stand is one of those rare occasions. I don't know. It was actually Maurice and I were arguing about this because he really doesn't like the extended edition. He thought the original was a bit too long, whereas I love the extended edition. I like everything that was added in there. And that one is a slightly different situation simply because the a lot of the cuts that were made were because his publisher insisted that it be below a certain word count to help with printing costs. And then once he proved that the book could sell a certain amount, that it justified going back and doing a re-edition. So that's not something where like I, um, well, I was going to trash M. Night Shyamalan, but I, I won't, uh, where he, he stuck a couple of deleted scenes in the glass that I recognized from my unbreakable DVD. And I'm like, ah, you ripped me off. I already had that at home. I didn't need to pay money to see that. Uh, but it wasn't like, taking the scenes that really didn't work and adding it back in. It was stuff that legitimately probably should have been there. Yeah. And to me, the story reads better with it, but that's yeah. it. Yeah. One of those rare occasions, it's far more frequent that you go back and you, um, you add stuff that maybe makes you feel better as an artist, but it's going to tick off a fan. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he's earned that privilege uh, with the, the, the amount of work he's put out into the world. Um, 
But yeah, you know, like I said, we all, the rest of us have to just move on. Well, what's uh, next for Lamar Giles? Giles. Oh, you're fine. You're fine. Um, I'm working on the Last Last Day sequel. I don't have a title for it yet or, or else I would share with you. I, I actually have a working title, but I'm arguing with the publisher now about whether that's going to be the actual title or not. So I'm not going to say it so as not to confuse the situation. But before that, I'm actually going to have um, a novel come out early next year called Not So Pure and Simple, which is quite a departure from what I've written so far because it's a contemporary coming of age story. It's about a young man who joins a purity pledge at his church because a girl he likes is in it, which is a horrible idea. And that's one I've done, but go on. He happens to start sex ed at his high school in the same week. He's the only kid in the church who's allowed to take that class. And so he becomes a go-between between the purity pledge kids and this forbidden information that they don't have means to get their hands on on their own. And so he starts to answer their sexual questions and it stirs up a bit of controversy in this small town. And so that's that's quite different than the work I've done. There's no murder, um, no magic, but it, it's again, it's 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 black kids that I recognize just living their lives. And it was important for me to at least attempt something like that once. Something like a purity pledge and um uh, when it's okay to, to begin to, to become sexually active is pretty universal, I would think. Yeah, yeah. So that's going to be out. We don't have a pub date yet, but I anticipate that will be early spring 2020. Gotcha. And if readers uh, want to stalk you online, they can, of course, find you at lamargiles.com. Uh, and where where else about on online can they find you? Um, I'm at lrgiles on Twitter. And I'm Lamar Giles on Instagram, and I'm Lamar Giles writer on Facebook. Lamar Giles, thank you so much for making the time to, to be here and, and talk about your works and Stephen King and all manner of fun stuff today. This has been an absolutely wonderful show. Um, I um, been asking guests to say our sign off phrase. Our sign off phrase is hi ya and what have you. Will you sign us off? Hiya and what have you.